Hello and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm Laurel Thompson and I'm very excited to be sharing this interview with you today. One, because it's been in my queue for a couple months as I've been struggling with some technology issues with my podcast feed. And I hope those are ironed out now. Let's keep our fingers crossed and I hope no one had any frustration. I had some frustration, but hopefully... You know, everyone else was uh, was just kind of riding along with it. <laughs> and um, two, because I just think that this is such important information. We're going to be speaking with Janet Horvath. She is a cellist and the author of Playing Less Hurt. It's a book all about avoiding injury and recovering from injury, and it's all geared towards musicians. So this is something that many of us do not even think about. We're so focused on scales and getting to the next gig and the next audition. And, and whatnot, that we just don't even consider that, wow, maybe we are creating injury that could put us on the sidelines. And how horrible would that be after all of our, you know, years of practice to have to take some time off and, um, and lose out, right? So today, we're going to talk with her about some, um, some different factors that could make you more susceptible to injury, some ideas to help avoid it. And what I thought was kind of hitting home the point to me was uh, this idea of hearing protection. And I do have musicians earplugs and, and I talk about that in the interview, but I don't necessarily always use them. And um, after the interview was recorded with Janet, I went out and I downloaded a decibel meter for my iPhone and it was free. Um, definitely encourage you to do it. It was super insightful and interesting to go around town and to, you know, check out how loud it is in a restaurant, how loud it is on a street corner. I played my violin and viola for the thing. And I was like, wow, you know, we're going into the decibels that are kind of dangerous in a long term way for our hearing pretty, pretty frequently. So, um, so that definitely made me think a lot more about making sure that those earplugs are close at hand all the time. And, um, and, you know, when I'm practicing to use my mute from time to time, um, as well, and, and just to do different things to make sure that my, my hearing is maintaining itself. So uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. And if you're on your computer, and you want to go ahead and check out Janet's site while you listen, it's playinglesshurt.com. That's playinglesshurt.com. Janet Horvath, H-O-R-V-A. TH. So I think we're just going to dive right in, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Janet, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking this time. Um, I came across your book, Playing Less Hurt, I would say about four years ago. I was on the East Coast, and I had had this violin hickey for my whole life. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Um, Met up with a woman out there. I don't know if you um, know Lynn Denning. They do uh, kind of custom chinwraps in Virginia there. So so I met up with her, and she had a copy of your book there, and she said, this book is a book that every musician needs to own. So um, so a little while later, I, I kept that in the back of my mind, and I thought, okay, well, you know, eventually I'm going to get that book. And eventually I did, and um, I was always very interested in helping my students be more comfortable, and I think, as we all know, the violin is a very strange instrument. I don't know how they ever decided that we were going to stick an instrument up on the left shoulder and um, and make beautiful music, but it does work, but I know that a lot of people do um, have injuries over time or, you know, different repetitive um, strain, you know, different different things come up, and I'm sure with a lot of other instruments as well. Um, I was curious if you could just maybe share a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book. Well, I am quite, uh, let's say, diminutive. I'm very short. I'm 4'11 and a half, and I have very small hands. Um, but I was determined that I really wanted to play the cello. Mm -hmm. And I was accepted in the class of Jana Schnarker, the great and formidable pedagogue. And at the time, he was a pretty scary figure. <laughs> but I decided, I had made up my mind, I wanted to be the greatest Starker student who ever lived. <laughs> and I was very inspired and decided that I would just practice and practice and practice. And 
rooms were at premium then there, so I couldn't lose my practice room and lose it, so I would practice and practice. And uh, Starker would go on extensive concert tours, so give us a lot of repertoire to keep us busy while he was gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after many, many days or weeks of practicing, I started to hurt. Mm. And I thought, nope, it's not hurting. I, it can't be hurting. I, you know, I'll just pretend it's not hurting. Until I got to the point that I couldn't pretend anymore that it, it was hurting because I couldn't do activities of daily living. I couldn't hold a cafeteria tray. I couldn't hold a phone. I couldn't wash my hair. Wow. I couldn't turn a doorknob. If you leave an injury to that extent, it can be that debilitating. Wow. So I went in tears to one doctor after the other and got cat answers of those days, which was, well, how can it hurt to play? Implying that it's all fun and games and right. <laughs> physically taxing. Or, oh, this must be all in your head. You musicians, you're so hysterical, aren't you? you know, uh, <laughs> sensitive. Um, or you need to get a new career, right? Oh, no. Which was, yeah, that really didn't go well with me. No. And I don't fault the doctors so much as I did then uh, because I know now that soft tissue injuries, which is the lion's share of the injuries that we see, don't show up on standard tests like the MRI or x-rays or CAT scans. Um, and over time, although we musicians were in the closet about it and thinking, you know, we're not going to be athletes, we're not jocks, right? Um, we started learning from athletic medicine that repetition and awkward postures can result in injuries. And we do need to treat ourselves as athletes because what we do is extremely physical, even if it is only the small muscle groups. And so over time, um, I started becoming an advocate after it took me six months to get back playing. Um, My teacher was horrified, but started me from scratch and I eliminated all tension and focused on ease of playing and it you know it made me be able to attain the peak of my career of course but also um, I wanted to help others understand uh, the risks and how to avoid injury. And that prevention is so key I mean you know all of us have probably sustained some sort of injury, whether it's been music-related or sports-related or, or something. And, and certainly as you get older, it, you know, it's harder to bounce back. But even um, younger younger people, I mean, I, I'm curious how old you were when all of this started for you, when all the, the pain symptoms and, and um, all that started. Well, I was in my early 20s, okay. very early 20s. Yeah. And now, you know... Just like as athletes are continuing to break athletic records, you know, mm-hmm. at one point the 100-yard dash in 10 seconds seemed, you know, ridiculous, and mm-hmm. now it's commonplace. Um, younger and younger musicians are playing harder and harder repertoire. That's true. And I, you know, wonder if that is very wise. I know it's not wise because bones and tissues are still growing in young teenagers and adolescents. And, of course, they're very determined and don't want to listen sometimes to um, caution. They want to play the hardest stuff, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto at age 13. Mm -hmm. And um, I see lots of very young people being injured. And sometimes... Now it, it can last chronically. Wow. So it, it's really important to train the, the teachers, you know. I find that especially my generation, but even younger people, younger teachers, don't have a clue as to what to do when in, their student presents with pain. And it's very important to have that kind of atmosphere in the classroom or the students, um, you know, private students.
studio lesson to have that openness to discuss pain issues and playing with ease and lack of tension. It's important that the student is able to feel comfortable to talk about it uh, so that there's no blame involved. Um, it's nobody's fault necessarily. Right. Uh, this can happen. Uh, some people are more injury prone than others because of smaller um, bones, smaller wrists, you know, just a slighter build, smaller tunnels. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so if one has the attitude from the beginning that, you know, how am I going to make this as easy to execute as possible? How can I do this with incredible ease? And of mm -hmm. course, that's going to sound the best, too. That's the goal. Right. <laughs> um, then throughout their lives, their playing life, they will be aware of this possibility. And, and the goal is comfort and ease of playing. Right. So having that be something that's set up as the foundation of playing rather than something you know, that you're fighting back against once the pain starts. And yeah, I don't, right. I, I'm, I'm curious if you've seen playing and body awareness change in both, you know, a teacher's awareness and in musician's awareness over the years, or, or if um, it's still something that, that people aren't really addressing. It's being addressed to a much greater extent than when I was a student. Now, of course, there's my book. There are lots of resources online. There's a ton of manufacturers who are making ergonomic tools and mm -hmm. splints and supports to help us hold instruments and uh, redesigning instruments in certain ways so that they are eliminating stretches and anything that's you know hard to execute mm -hmm. on an instrument. Um, there are schools that are starting to invite specialists to come in to speak. I, I go to many different schools to do that. Sadly, sometimes we still see the scenario that the student thinks, oh, I can't go to a stupid lecture, I've got to practice. So, um, unless they are hurting. Right. Um, and then they show up, of course. Right. So, so there are still pockets in the country where people feel very isolated, they feel alone, they feel like they're the only one. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that the field of performing arts medicine in the three decades I've been involved in has just grown leaps and bounds, not to say that we're even as far ahead as um, sports medicine, mm -hmm. but we, we certainly have a lot of excellent people and um, performing arts medicine places to go to, um, great clinics. We have a textbook out that's training medical professionals how to treat musicians now. It's a specialty. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot available if people would know about it. Yeah, and seek that out. I'm curious, because, um, you know, some listeners might not be at the point yet where they're feeling anything, but maybe, I mean, especially um, with the violin, I, I've definitely seen people over the years where they come to me and they say, yeah, it, it, it's never really felt that comfortable, but it's never really bothered me either. So I just figured it's okay. And it's just never going to feel like it's really that extension of your body. And I, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I, I believe that there is a way, you know, with, with, different, um, with a different setup that we can get comfortable. It might take a while to figure out exactly how that's going to be. But, but what might be some factors that, that someone could, could look at to figure out their susceptibility to injury and, uh, and how they can avoid that? Mm -hmm. making anything different um, be 
before they have to perform. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it takes this mindset of knowing that there is tension, there is awkwardness, there's repetition, incredible repetition, even when we are doing everything right, we can hurt ourselves. I, I don't know if you've heard my famous story, but it's the um, story of how many snare drums broke her in Bolero. <laughs> and I decided I would count them. And I was amazed and went to our snare drum player and I said, Brian, tell me, do you know how many? Brooks, there are in Bolero, and he said, oh, I don't know, Janet, 800, 900? Mm. I said, no, that's 5,144. And he, his, you know, chin dropped open, and he looked at me, and he said, Janet, I don't want to know that. Don't tell me that. You didn't really count those, did you? And I said, well, yes, I did. Wow. He said, you need a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so... The things that can cause injuries are usually a combination of factors, and we call it repetitive strain injury because a lot of injuries are, as I said earlier, soft tissue injuries, and they often are cumulative, and it's a combination of repetition, awkward postures or poor postures, mm -hmm. you know, bad habits that we've sunk into, insufficient break time, the amount of force and tension the person might use, and that they're playing too much at one time mm -hmm. without any kind of um, mini breaks or larger breaks. So it's usually not just one thing. It's usually a combination of factors. And sure. often I will hear people say, oh, you know, everything was going great, and then suddenly it started hurting. Right. And it's never that sudden unless it, you know, it can happen that you have an acute injury, like you sprain your ankle, sure. um, that you try to do some ridiculous double third or octave pass for three hours and then you're really hurt. Right. Um, it's more often cumulative over time, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years. And, there are red flags that occur well before it gets to the point of actual pain. And that can include, the first sign might be fatigue or mm -hmm. heaviness. Something that you really could nail, no problem, two weeks ago is suddenly your fingers are sluggish, uh, don't want to do it. Mm. Weakness, impaired dexterity, clumsiness. Mm -hmm. All of these could be a sign previous to the actual pain. Any tingling or numbness is certainly a red flag because yeah. that can mean that there's nerve involvement. So that people should really pay attention to. So I frequently tell people who come to, to me to keep a diary. So if you've got your schedule in your phone or on a, you know, in a calendar, after you do a practice session, write in how you felt. Oh, today I, I nailed the straws and it felt really good. Oh, today I'm really tired and somehow I just can't seem to get my fingers to move. That sort of thing because it's, it's easier to trace back to when issues started happening if you've got a ongoing record of how you felt. That's a great and idea. I, yeah. I, I try to tell people to, when you have to force yourself to practice, I mean, there are times when you really do, um, but if you're really feeling sluggish and tired, you should back off. Take mm -hmm. more breaks, take time to wiggle, do more sessions rather than one marathon session. Um, it's important to be disciplined about your warm-up and your break time. Every time, even if you've played in the morning, you're going to play again at night, warm up. It may not take as long, but it's really important. That's the most important thing, to warm up slowly and carefully. I say not too high, not too low, not too fast, not too slow. In the mid-range of your instrument, so 
many of us think warming up means practicing duvenis or cello or, or flutter-tonguing or triple-tonguing on an <laughs> instrument. That's not warming up. That's technique-building mm-hmm. exercises, which are very taxing, too. So long tones, um, not too, you know, slow in the middle of the instrument are wise. On, on strings, I suggest doing long shifts. We have to learn how to do shifts anyway. Mm-hmm. That warms up the larger muscle groups first before the smaller ones. Good idea. But I also tell people to warm up away from the instrument first. So it's, it was a very cold winter here. Yes, um, indeed. Don't launch into some difficult repertoire without doing a few minutes of jumping in one place or running up and down the stairs or swimming or whatever you can do to warm up your upper body that you are, your muscles are warmed up first. Yeah, it's true. I mean, a lot of people, and that was one of my questions, just talking about this idea of warming up. And I think a lot of people don't warm up at all, or they think, well, what warm up is to play your scales. And it's like, well, there's a lot going on in a scale besides just warming up literally your muscles. Um, and to think about it as such, to you know, get the circulation moving, I think we choose a lot different warm ups than than just playing scales. Not that scales are a bad thing, but I think that scales would also be be challenging challenging you in other ways um, aside from just you know just the pure warm up. So the the things you're talking about, like doing the long tones and and um, and shifting and stuff to warm up bigger muscle groups as well as yeah the jumping jacks or or um, whatever it is it is a big deal and and I think that um, certainly when I have been physically cold before a performance or in practicing I just that um, the dexterity issues that you're talking about um, previously those are definitely a factor I mean just like my my fingers are cold and I would imagine that you know, if I was also tense um, because I was nervous or something like that, then that could also contribute to injury. You know, maybe my posture is not so good because I'm trying to stay warm. I mean, it's all, um, it's such a holistic practice, you know, playing an instrument. It's such a a mind-body practice. So it makes sense to set ourselves up for, um, yeah, just kind of being right there at the, um, in the best, in the best situation possible. I'm curious about um, you're talking a lot about taking breaks, and do you have a certain recommendation, or does it kind of vary for um, the situation or the the age of the person, or yeah, what what can you say about taking breaks? I the recommendation now by physicians is that ten minutes per hour mm-hmm. is a, a good amount of break time. That gives your muscles an opportunity to almost 100% recover, and then you can easily um, go on with your practice. With someone very young, I would recommend breaks every half hour. Mm-hmm. And the break means to allow your arms to uncurl and hang down, to roll your shoulders, to wiggle, to move, to get up, move around. Um, it's very essential. The breaks and the warm-up are probably the most important thing to Mm -hmm. avoid injury. Um, But I talk also about mini breaks. Very often we won't get 10 hours, uh, 10 minutes per hour of break time in an orchestra rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And some schools tend to have three-hour rehearsals instead of two-and-a-half, which we professionals do. Um, so we um, we often are aware of doing this kind of thing of trying to give our body breaks. I call mm-hmm. them my onstage tricks or mini breaks. Very often I can look across the stage and a violinist who might have a few bars left just keeps holding the violin up. Right. And they play, and they hold it up, and they play, and they stop, and they hold it up, and never thinking to uncurl arms and allow them to hang. So there are little mini moves you can do hmm. to alleviate tension. And I have a whole slew of 
of them in my book, but very briefly, it's, it's really important that we do the opposite of what we're doing when we play. So risky postures include holding arms at shoulder level or above shoulder level or mm-hmm. allowing shoulders to droop. Well, so many things that we do are in front of us. Mm-hmm. You know, and we want our power in our instruments. So it's really important to make sure that the shoulders are down and square, the torsos aren't tilting. So in a rehearsal, it's really easy to do one big shoulder roll or shrug um, just to make sure that you're letting go of those muscles that can get tight. You can turn your head to the left and right. You can tilt your head right ear to right shoulder, left ear to left shoulder. Mm -hmm. You can pull your arms behind you um, to just open your pectoral muscles. That can take, you know, one second. Um, If you have to hold your instrument, you can do one arm behind you on the chair and then the other. You can certainly hold your instrument with one arm when you take a bow and put your other arm behind you, you know, with your palm your arm flat and your mm-hmm. palm reaching up towards your head. Um, you can readjust your seating, wiggle, make sure that you um, have that lumbar curve in the lower part of your back uh, that is there when you're standing naturally. It's, it's really important to avoid static posture. So keeping still, we're taught to sit like statues, and keeping still is what can cause tension to build up. So we can move unobtrusively, of course, but you can still roll your wrists and roll your thumbs and you know, shrug your shoulders and wiggle, you know, pull your shoulders back, um, pulling those two bones in the back of your body, mm-hmm. upper body together. All these little things can help alleviate this buildup of tension. So I advise both doing mini breaks and doing the 10 minute per hour, especially when you're at home and in control of your time. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think we can get all so focused and it's a good thing, you know, focused on um, what we're doing and um, yeah, forget to to do that and um, forget to be aware of our bodies. Uh, Do you find that when people start becoming aware of their bodies, they, they actually notice more tension and maybe even pain than they thought was even going on? Is that kind of an eye-opener? Yes, I think so. I mean, when I point out, you know, hey, this doesn't look natural. I know it feels natural to you, but the person is, you know, kind of cocking their, their torso to the left or the right with chalice. You know, if they want to play on the A string, it's not uncommon to have them turn their torsos. And I say, turn the instrument, not you. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's easy to figure that out if you watch yourself in a mirror, or you can pretend you're sitting with your instrument. I mean, some people can do it with their instrument, like mm-hmm. oboe or whatever. Uh, pretend you're sitting against the wall and keep your shoulders on the wall your head on the wall with the cervical curve that's supposed to be there in your neck mm-hmm. and the lumbar curve that's supposed to be in your lower back. And sometimes people will go, aha, that doesn't feel like what I feel like when I'm playing. And uh, that's a way to tell if you're really, um, you know, in neutral position or natural mm-hmm. square to the front. That's that's the goal. That's a great um, tip. There are tools now that can help people figure out where the tension is. Because as I said earlier, sometimes we're so used to playing in a certain way, we don't even realize it, that we're tense. Uh, many hospitals and doctors' clinics now have biofeedback machines right. where they can put these little sensors on certain muscles, and then you can play and with your instrument. And you can see on the screen that the lines are incredibly jagged and with all peaks when you're tense. And you can learn by watching the screen how to let go of those certain muscles. That's a great tool. Um, so, so there are ways to determine 
determine whether you're playing with too much tension. But you can certainly hear it in your sound, too. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Um, I you, uh, earlier mentioned um, as one of the first signs of a potential injury or strain creeping up on you is this sort of more sluggishness in your playing and maybe dexterity issues and stuff like that. And I was thinking about all of the students and myself as well, um, you know, just over the years where maybe we're preparing for something, a recital or a performance, and we get to that point and yeah, probably an audition. <laughs> we get to that point where it's like, oh no, I'm like a week before and I feel like I'm getting worse. Do you think that might actually yeah. be a sign of injury from from overplaying? Overplaying can definitely cause an injury. Uh, before those kinds of scary and strenuous activities, mm -hmm. competitions, juries, auditions, I recommend writing down uh, two or three days, starting with a three-day plan. It's mm -hmm. really easy to go, oh, I forgot this one, I have to practice that one, and oh yeah, there's this one too, and it's really hard, and I have to spend time on it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I have people write down all the repertoire that they have to learn, and alternate hard with easier. Mm -hmm. You know, you're gonna use different muscle groups if you're playing Strauss, Don Juan, or Einheldenleben, mm -hmm. or Mozart Symphony, or, you know, pieces too. It's really important to alternate your repertoire so that you don't get stuck on something, but you're sure you're covering everything, but you're using different muscle groups in your time period. Yeah. In your practice plan, you write in a warm-up stretch time and a break time, and you figure out carefully what repertoire will not tax your muscles too much. Also, it's really important that before an audition or competition that you back off, that you take more breaks, that you're careful about warming up, and that you... Before the audit, like really before, like a week before or a few days before, you start doing more mental practice than actual physical practice. Mental practice, they have now found, is just as effective as playing at your instrument. You can look at the music, you can visualize it, you can sing it, you can imagine acing it, which is very good for your nerves. You can work on your memory, and it doesn't tax your body. Very often, especially wind players, but, but string players too, will feel much more nervous if the instrument isn't in their hands till the very second they walk out on stage, and then they get out on stage and they're, you know, very, very tired and can't do mm -hmm. the audition. I've seen it over and over. Wow. So it's really important to back off a few days before and the mental preparation of, you know, I feel great, I'm nailing this, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to touch them emotionally, to focus on these positive thoughts is about the most important thing before an audition. Um, I completely or competition agree. Or performance yeah. than anything. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, doing that, that practice away from the instrument um, is, I've found it to be just as effective and kind of prepares you for that moment when you're really going to be going out there too, as far as um, hopefully um, helping to reduce your nerves and anxiety about it. So, yeah. 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 Um, There's two more things that I think we really should cover. Mm -hmm. And the first that, that we really need to talk about as far as posture is the chair that you're sitting on. And it's true that just as an instrument isn't one-size-fits-all, a chin rest and shoulder pad configuration is not one-size-fits-all. Yes. Because <laughs> necks vary in heights and chins are different shapes. But chairs are not one-size-fits-all, too. That's true. So someone like me, if I sit back in a chair, my legs dangle. And that's bad. Mm -hmm. And for someone who's six feet tall or more, 
they feel sometimes on a chair that their knees are in their face. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that your knees descend from your hips. So when you sit on a chair, it should be high enough so that your 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 there's a downward sloping from your pelvis through your thighs to your knees. And you need to figure out any way you can with a higher chair, with homemade like wooden pucks that have a non-flip underneath that can go under the seat legs to raise the chair, or there are a lot of really good dense foam cushions mm-hmm. available on uh, online that can raise somebody who's tall, uh, who's sitting on a, you know, some of the worst chairs are, are those folding chairs. So the chair is essential yeah. to maintaining that proper posture so that your weight is forward and on your feet. Um, the good test of that is if someone can just get up without rearranging everything. Right. If, if your back is in a C curve, like a cat, then you won't be able to get up and your your spine is stressed, your breathing is compromised, and your weight is going backwards and not into the instrument as you need it to do that. Because all our power comes from our back. Yeah, exactly. So there are lots of ergonomics um, chairs being made for musicians that are available. There's a pretty inexpensive one that you can get on Amazon that's a folding chair that's nice and high and um, flat bottomed. And there's no curving or sloping backwards, which mm-hmm. is horrible for musicians. So that's, that's really important to make sure you have a good chair. And then I know you wanted to get into some hearing issues. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's been something that... I didn't really start to realize about the violin until I was probably in my late teens or early 20s. Like, wow, this is actually a really loud instrument, (laughs) and it's right by my ear. And, um, you know, I think if we're we're not a drummer or we're not playing in a loud rock band, we're probably not really thinking about our ears. Um, Are symphony musicians having hearing loss? Yes. Um, first of all, you, you picked up on something that a lot of upper string players don't realize, and that is that it's almost across the board that violinists' left ear are compromised because of their proximity to the F-hole. Mm-hmm. So if only you put an earplug in that ear during practice time, you will be saving your ears. Um... People don't realize that normal, what, what OSHA is allowing is 80 decibels a day or 85 decibels a day mm-hmm. for eight hours. Decibels work logarithmically. That means that for every three decibel increase, the volume doubles. So at 88 decibels, you should only be exposed four hours. And at 91 decibels, you should only be exposed two hours, et cetera. At 100 decibels, really, you should only be exposed at 15 minutes. And not to scare people, but sometimes that 15 minutes before rehearsal starts, everybody's warming up, everybody's practicing their parts, and that I've clocked on my iPhone as a decibel. Um, meter mm-hmm. I have. Oh, awesome. That's already way above 100 decibels. Really? The wow. The left ear can easily reach 100. Flute, French horn go well into the 106 range. Piccolo, 112 wow. decibels. Um, symphonic music at its pit could, at its, sorry, at its peak could be 120 or 130 um, decibels, which is comparable to a jet plane taking off. Wow. Um, so at, at those levels, you can have instantaneous hearing injury. So I usually caution people to not practice in really reverberant places like bathrooms or mm-hmm. um, places that have 
tile walls, um, small places that, that will really re reverberate because that, that is deathly for your ears. And some school classrooms are all like that, you know, where there's not a scrap of carpeting or you know, yeah. uh, hanging on the walls or curtains or something to, to dampen the sound. But at least don't mow your lawn or leaf blow or go to a rock concert or a really loud restaurant after a big, loud performance. Um, your ears can recover after 10, 12 hours of silence. So it's um, more the repetition over time, like when it's we're... It's the same, it's the same, same as, as injury. It's um, other injuries. It's cumulative. Yeah. At first, those little filaments in your ears bend down when there's a loud noise, and they bounce back. But eventually, they become brittle and can break. Wow. And what's awful about hearing injuries is that one can recover from an overuse injury uh, on your instrument, but hearing injury is permanent. Hearing issues are all not curable. Wow. So the, the thing that most people don't understand is that hearing loss, per se, is not the worst scenario, believe it or not. Hmm. There are noise-induced hearing injuries that occur very commonly, even in you know the normal population. Uh, most people know about tinnitus or tinnitus right. because millions of teenagers are now experiencing it. They call it the ringing in the ears that only you can hear. It's actually the brain that's ringing. But some people describe the sound not like ringing. They can be very varying levels of different kinds of sounds. But some people actually have roaring in their heads that sounds like a train in their head. Wow. And that is very disruptive to life, to sleep. Everything I, I, you know, I know of people that are so depressed with um, having this injury because oh, yeah. it limits going to noisy places and enjoying your life to the fullest, let alone playing. So tinnitus, there are millions and millions of teens that already have that injury from wearing iPods, uh, you know, and headphones, cranking up their music because they want to drown out the ambient noise. Um, not realizing that they're exposing themselves to 100 decibels or more for way too long. They think they can listen all day, and that's just not true. Um, the other injury that's becoming more common is the opposite, practically. It's called hyperacusis, hmm. where sensitivity to sound is to such a point that everything sounds loud to these people, and they don't want to leave their houses wow. because everything hurts. Every sound causes pain. And those people have eventually become hermits because they can't stand normal sounds mm, that don't yeah. seem loud to other people. Um, there's another injury called uh, recruitment. There are several where certain pitches will jump out at you. Uh, you're listening to something and then something really sounds loud and hurts. Uh, that is a segment of those little filaments in your ear that have broken. And so that um, segment, that pitch or frequency causes pain. So these, these noise-induced injuries can be much more disruptive to life than even some hearing loss. And know, people should know that hearing loss occurs at the highest pitches first. Those are the most detrimental. Piccolo, trumpet, uh, soprano saxophone, uh, violin. Those, those are the ones that, that are most dangerous. And it's really important to keep a distance if you can Wear hearing protection. There are some great earplugs now that one can actually play with and hear fine. Your brain gets used to it. Mm -hmm. um, there's the ear musicians, earplugs, etymotic research. 
I recommend 25 decibel filters, but you can get them in 15 as well. But if you can't um, afford those, they're custom made mm -hmm. so that they are fitted right inside the air canal, just like a false tooth. They have to be um, made, like, and those are very effective. But really cheap ones that work fabulously well are called Howard Light, L-E-I-G-H-T, Matrix. And they're available on Amazon. They're little spongy guys, but they have a solid center. So you don't have to squeeze them down and roll them and mm -hmm. get them in right and hold your ear. Um, and then um, those kind, the spongy kind, you can't hear the play. These matrix, you can hear the play. And you can pop them in and pop them out. You don't have to squeeze them. They're very effective. Awesome. And, and take that edge off, give you the protection, but allow you to be able to hear to play. That's great. So Howard Light Matrix. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I have a pair that they have. I'm not exactly sure what the brand is anymore. I've had them for quite a few years, but um, they have, like, different filters you can put in there. And... What I found with those is if I can get them just right, they're great, and I can still hear everything I need to, but then it's kind of elusive getting it just right. So maybe I should try these and and see. Oh, I, I really like these. And I, t I help test them with a couple of different orchestras, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people like these. Um, even though our orchestra, the Minnesota Orchestra, uh, did get it in the contract that the orchestra was required to provide um, the funding to purchase the ER um, musicians' earplugs. Mm -hmm. So most of the musicians have them and they use them, but sometimes you don't have enough time to get them in mm -hmm. or get them out for a solo that you really want to be on your toes for. Mm -hmm. um, I think they work fantastic, but these are a great other option, and they're very quick to get in and out. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's really important. I mean, especially as I've gotten into playing with bands in recent years, and I had an experience recently where it was a new group, and I'd only had two rehearsals, and it was all improvised. And I, during the sound check, I had my earplugs in, and... I was like, gosh, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to really hear everything that's going on enough to be able to create something <laughs> that works. And so during the performance, I ended up, um, after the first song, taking them out so I could hear better. But then, you know, afterwards, you know, I've got that like fuzzy sound in my ears for a few hours. So that kind of scares me. And I, I, um, I definitely don't want to make that kind of thing a habit, you know. So uh, yeah, I want I, you to. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But that's that's really a critical yeah thing to pay attention to. Just like maybe fatigue on your instrument. Mm -hmm. What you experienced has a fancy name. It's called uh, threshold shift. Hmm. So that's what I was referring to when all those little filaments in your ear have been bent down. Mm -hmm. And then after a period of time, they recover. So, but after a loud concert or, you know, a rehearsal, if you do feel your, your hearing is compromised, you have a little ringing in your ears, you, you don't hear clearly, a good test of this is to set your radio to talk radio mm -hmm. at a level that you can just hear it before you go into a session. And then afterwards, turn it on again and see if it's just as clear to you. And if it isn't, then you know you've had a, a threshold shift. Yeah, After that's... a certain time, this can become permanent, as I indicated earlier. If you have too many of these partial threshold shifts, eventually these little filaments get brittle and they'll break, and you will have a hearing injury. So. You can get used to hearing normally with the earplugs in. I'm a great example of that um, because I wore them all the time. And, okay. Um, at a certain point, I had to. And other people do too. 
your well, brain good to hear. adjusts. Your brain adjusts. And yeah, it's just so really different when. Mm-hmm. It's it's just really distressing that people put a great deal of weight on seeing well, but hearing seems to be not as in the forefront of people's minds. And if you lose your hearing, you are cut off from the world, and you are at more risk of having um, Alzheimer's or dementia or other brain issues because you can't communicate. Oh, interesting. And, and your, your hearing, once it's starting to be compromised, can go downhill very quickly if you don't get it checked out um, and, you you know, you leave it. Um, so I'm urging people to be advocates for this very last pollution that we haven't addressed. <laughs> of, of, you know, no, no matter where you go, yeah. there's loud music blasting yeah. to the point that you can't talk. Um, you know, what's the point of going to a restaurant if you can't talk <laughs> to the person you're with? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and all these power tools and, and, and people do them anytime, Sunday morning, Sunday night, at Saturday afternoon. Uh, it is really dangerous because I think we're, we're raising a generation of people that are going to be deaf. I hate to be that blunt. <laughs> well, and then no one's going to be really able to, to create the beautiful music anymore. They can't hear all the subtleties. And, um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something that... Uh, I'm going to go and check into these Howard Light Matrix earplugs and see if those might be a good solution for me. Um, thank you so much for taking this time to chat with me and the Violin Geek podcast listeners. I'm curious, um, you say that you do um, workshops and talks. Are those ever open to the public? Is that something someone could come and, and see you doing? Oh, yes. I, I've done actually one for Ohio State University on Skype. Awesome. So those are available. Um, I have gone to several colleges this year, and I think most of them are free and open to the public. I'm happy to do them for teachers groups or youth orchestras or college orchestras or college groups. Um, I've done them at conferences. So... It's just a matter of getting the word out that help is available. Yeah. And it doesn't have to hurt play. Yeah. So how can people find you and get a hold of your book? My book is available on Amazon. It's published by Hal Leonard Corporation. Now, some stores can uh, do carry it or can order it for sure. It's called Playing Less Hurt and Injury Prevention Guide for Musicians. I do have a website, www.playinglesshurt.com, and people can email me through that site if they need help. I do individual sessions as well, quite a lot. And do you do those and, uh, in person as, as well as on Skype? Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I think that, yeah, once um, once the injury is there, it's obviously a lot harder to back up to where there's no pain. So I definitely encourage everyone to go out and, and buy Janet's book and uh, possibly get in touch and make sure that, that there's no um, injuries creeping up. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to mention? I do have a couple of really good short videos on my own site as well to talk about injuries so they can just click on them and also there's a free study about hearing that was done in Britain one of the best I've seen and people can download that and print it for themselves for free it's called a sound ear so that's on my website and um, there's another site called athletes and medicine um, Musicians, athletes and musicians that have, I'm interviewed on it, but there are several other really excellent performing arts medicine specialists interviewed on that. And lastly, if someone's in an area that 
they don't have a clue who might be um, performing arts medicine specialists near them. The Performing Arts Medicine Association, PAMA, has a very good website and a doctor referral um, availability. So that's a, a good place to go to see if you can find a specialist in your area. And tell us that website again. It's PAMA, P-A-M-A. P-A-M-A. Performing Arts Medicine Association. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for everything you're doing for the musicians community. Um, I'm sure that, you know, it sounds like through reading your website here, uh, your book has definitely been very well received, and I'm sure has has been one of the leading things that has probably made a difference in shifting this awareness to our bodies and how we can play less hurt. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Again, thanks so much to Janet Horvath for sharing all of those great ideas and insights with us. I hope that was informative and that all of you will take a look at your playing posture and technique and find some things that you might be able to do to make yourself more comfortable. You know, I think that if we're as comfortable as we can be when we're playing, the music can flow and soar so much better that way. I know that whenever I have noticed that I've been getting tight, I also think back to the music and it's like, you know, it wasn't really the best music I could have been playing. So those things go hand in hand. Um, thankfully, you know, I think it's a good thing. We can start to tune in with our ears. And if we start hearing even, you know, the subtle shifts that let us know, gosh, there's tension brewing here. <laughs> Maybe we can start to avoid injury as well. So again, uh, Playing Less Hurt is Janet's website, and you can buy her book through some links there. Um, you can find it on Amazon and hopefully at your local bookstore if you still have a local bookstore. Um, I'm thankful to have one still. But um, yeah, it's a great book. And if you are a teacher or a parent, I particularly encourage you to have it around and to read it and to apply it. Because that's where I really feel like, you know, all these injuries are brewing. It's in the, the really young, like young children who, you know, they still have gumby bones. So they, they can't necessarily um, know that, that they are doing things that can injure them down the road. Um, yeah, so playing less hurt, Janet Horvath. Um, yeah, that was great. I'm really glad that we got to do that. And if you have any ideas for the next interviewee, um, please send me an email. My email is laurel at laurelthompson.com. And that's also my website. So um, L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N, laurel at laurelthompson.com. You can find me at www.laurelthompson.com. And uh, yeah, as we move into the fall here, I'd like to have some, some more interviews. I have a a few ideas out there, but um, gosh, I've been pretty busy lately with um, taking on some new students and uh, lots of lots of different gigs. And anyway, um, want to keep the podcast rolling here. So if there's anyone in particular you definitely want to hear from, um, let me know. You can also find me on Facebook at Laurel Thompson Music. And um, yeah, go ahead and, and like my page over there. I'd appreciate that. And then if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or as I said, any ideas for the next interviewee, uh, you can go ahead and post those to my wall. And um, I'm sure that particularly if you have any um, questions about anything that um, a lot of other students might benefit from that and uh, podcast listeners. So I definitely encourage you to go over there and, and make it a social thing. I wanted to reach out as well and say that I'm going to be starting up some tours um, in the new year in 2015 and are still looking to fill some dates. So if you are um, in Canada, if you're in Western Canada, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, or British Columbia, and you would like to host a house concert, um, I would love to come and play your home. <laughs> And um, hey, you know, if you play violin or viola or fiddle, uh, I'd love to also, um, you know, 
to host a workshop. And um, it, it's no cost to you. You basically invite all your friends and family and make it a party. So um, I'm going to be in Canada from uh, late January through late March. And, uh, and if you are interested and, and have some time and a space uh, to host, then send me an email, laurel at laurelthompson.com. And then I'm planning to be on the East Coast from uh, late May 2015 through early June, and probably um, not so much the the south, uh, the southern area of the East Coast, but New England and uh, New York, and um, and kind of the D.C. area and all of that. So if you live over there or have friends or family who would like to host a house concert, or um, Hey, for any of these, if you have um, great listening venues as well, um, that would be great. You know, we do all of our own bookings. So um, so all the help that we can get is much appreciated. And um, and we'd love to also to share some some teaching out there as well. Um, it's nice when, you know, a house concert and a and a little workshop about a particular technique or a style or um, some repertoire stuff. We could do like a masterclass thing. Uh, lots of different possibilities. So you can find all that information on my website, um, kind of about what I do when I perform and when I teach. And again, that's laurelthompson.com. So um, let's see, I do have a space for a few more weekly Skype students or in-person students in my lesson studio if you want to contact me about that. And I'm always available for one-off or short-term coaching. Um, You know, if you have a particular problem area or technique you want to master and you need some extra help, I'm happy to help. And until next time, happy practicing.